you have your Bibles, we're going to look into a story. And what I love about this story is that it's in Matthew and it's in Luke. So we're going to get two very unique and distinct perspectives on, a, on, on one story, which is going to paint the whole picture. And I think that there's something in this for all of us. And I, I want to say this, that I'm sharing this because I in my life have felt stuck. Have you ever felt stuck? I felt stuck trying to pay debt. I felt stuck trying to lose weight. I felt stuck trying to plan a church. I felt I, I can I can write a book. I can I think I can write an encyclopedia on stuck. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? And so um, I want to encourage you about great faith because I want to see everyone. I want to see the people of God. I want to see us get unstuck. I want to see us moving forward in the kingdom. And um, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in Ephesians chapter six. All of the armor is for your front because there's no retreating. And in the kingdom, you were only created to move forward. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We were not designed to retreat. Forward is the only direction that God is going. And so I want to really encourage you and, and, and just paint this picture that the scripture gives us and, and share something with you that I believe will be helpful for your life. And... Um, I want to, I want to, how, how many of you would like Jesus to look at your life and say, that's great faith? Right? He only said that to one person. <laughs> and it wasn't a churchgoer. So, so interesting who he said it to. And so we're going to, we're going to get into that. I hope this blesses you today. Um, we'll go Matthew chapter eight, verse five. Now, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For also I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way. As you have believed, so let it be done for you. And the servant was healed from this same hour. Before we get into the scripture, let's talk about the writer. The writer is Matthew. Matthew used to be Levi. Levi was a tax collector. What did Levi do? Levi made a living extorting his own people. Jesus transformed him. And now he's used to give God's people the most valuable thing you can give people, which is the gospel of the kingdom, which is the revelation of the supremacy of Christ and what that means. So he was, he was someone who used to take from God's people. He encounters Jesus, and now he's someone who's used to give to God's people. He was taking what was worthless And now he's giving what is priceless. And so that's what happens when we meet Jesus. There is a transformation that takes place if we're willing to follow him and give ourselves to this process. So that means no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, Jesus is saying, come to me. And the good news is we can come to him as we are. It gets even better. We don't have to stay that way. Right? The centurion comes to him. And you know what the centurion calls him? Lord. In Greek, that's the word Kyrios. They used to call it, that word is used for Caesar. Kyrios Kaiser. They used to call Caesar, Lord Caesar. That was a title that was for Caesar. What that meant is supreme in authority. The centurion comes to him and recognizes there is an authority above Caesar. 
When you call someone Lord, you're saying that everyone else is not. That's why when Paul said, anyone who says that Jesus Christ is Lord is saved, what is that about? Well, the, the implications in that culture is if you call Jesus Lord, that means Caesar is not, which means that was punishable by death. So if you're willing to die, then you have life. It wasn't just a cheap profession at an altar, and then you go and live like the devil. And I'm not saying we are saved by grace through faith, but real faith gets worked out in our life and gets walked out in real life. And so he calls him Lord. It's really powerful. It's a very, very powerful statement. And that's the first thing he calls Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this story is that in the ancient world, you had a, most, a, a vast amount of the population were slaves. And the slavery had nothing to do with color, had everything to do with economics and military and who was conquered. Okay? So it's, not, it's, it's a different type of a culture. And so what's odd and what's strange is here you have a centurion who is in charge of a hundred men, and these are trained men, and they kill people for a living. I mean, just, just so you know. But he's showing concern for someone who is under him. In fact, the real word you're going to see in, in, in Luke, Luke tells the same story. Luke calls him at the end a doulos, which is a slave. Do you remember when Jesus said, uh, the woman said to Jesus, even the slaves eat from the master's table, the crumbs? In Rome, when people would eat, they would take the food and slide it off the table, and the doulos would eat that food. Right? So that's who this boy is. This is a slave boy. This is not a grown-up slave. This is not, you know, like a, this is a slave. But what's profound and what's wild and what's interesting about the story, what a first century eyes would see is you have a, a centurion who is a man of war. He has a hundred guys under him. He has a household, but he's showing concern for a slave boy. People in those days, especially children, were disposable. In fact, the early Christians were known for rescuing and for taking children that people had threw, thrown away. And when I say throw away, I'm talking about left them in the wilderness to die, pushed them off a cliff. I'm talking about children were disposable. And that was the common consensus of the ancient world. So now you have something that's radically different. You have a centurion, and he's concerned about the well-being of a slave boy. We're going to continue. He's paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, this word heal is therapeu. It's where we get the word therapeutic. So Jesus says, I will come and wait upon him menially. I will come and I will give him therapy. Some of us could use a little therapy from Jesus, right? So Jesus comes and says, I'm going to come over. And I'm going to wait on him like almost like a servant would do, kind of like a male nurse. Are you okay? You know, like care, concern, wait. So I'm going to come and give him therapy. Imagine Jesus said, I'm going to come to your house and give this slave boy therapy. The centurion said, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed. The word healed here is not the word therapy. It's, it's the word that denotes supernatural healing. See, what you believe about God often will determine what you receive from him. There was something different that the centurion believed. By calling him Lord, he was saying, you have the capability and you have the capacity and you have the authority and you have the power to do something that Caesar cannot. In fact, you don't even have to go to my house, just speak. How did he understand this? Watch his description. For I am a man under authority. Then he says, having soldiers under me. Do you see that? He's under authority, so he has influence. He's under authority, so when he speaks, things happen. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, saying to this one, go, go, and the other, come, come, and do this and do that, and it, gets, and it happens. One of the things that we have to understand about authority or influence is 
It's to actually get something done. We've been given authority. We've been given influence by God to actually accomplish things on the earth that are different because we went somewhere. Because we work somewhere. Because we live somewhere. Things should be different where we go because his authority has been given to us and we use it as we go. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and he said, Assuredly, I haven't found such great faith in Israel. Now, let me, let me explain to you perhaps why there was not that type of faith in Israel. Israel was occupied by Rome. What does that mean? It means that they were abused. And people who are abused do not handle authority correctly, do not understand authority correctly, do not respond to authority correctly. So guess what? They can't move in great faith because great faith moves in and sits in an understanding of how authority works. This is why the enemy works overtime for people to get abused and hurt and rejected by authority because what happens is if I get hurt by authority, if I get abused, I won't relate to it correctly until I get healed so the enemy will neutralize me and I will not be promoted because to be promoted in the kingdom you have to understand authority and you have to honor to be promoted. So if I'm hurt, angry, and bitter, I'm now neutralized and I can't work and I can't walk and I can't do anything as an ambassador or as a representative because I'm bitter and I'm sick. See, and so we live in a generation that has been rejected, has been through rejection. And then what does that give? That, that leaves people with an addiction to approval. So I'm not what you think about me. I'm what God says about me. I am not your perception of me. I am God's word over me. You see the difference there? And that's the place that we need to live from if we're going to be healthy, if we're going to be free, and if we're going to be agents of healing. This is very, very critical. So Jesus, as a Jew, you know, he's fully God, fully man, but he came from a Jewish womb. Right? He understands that even among the people of God who the promises were made to, this type of faith doesn't exist. Jesus is not someone who came into a church and gives front row prophecy and flatters people and says, you're great, you're beautiful, you're amazing, you're awesome, the Lord says you're lovely. Jesus doesn't do that. When Jesus says something, it is what it is. And Jesus says, he, he marveled, it's, it actually means that he admired his faith. Do you imagine Jesus admiring your faith? I, I would love if, you know, Jesus were sitting in the front row, no one could see him, and he goes, okay, that was good. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not, I'm not looking for an amen or whatever. I, I want Jesus to feel comfortable with what I'm saying and my intentions and motives and delivery. And he goes, okay, that was, that was all right. That was pretty good. So Jesus is watching this situation. He's seeing the heart of the centurion. And he goes, I haven't seen this type of faith among my people, among God's people, among the people who the promises were made to. The people who the promises were made to were supposed to be the people of faith. But here you have a man of war who has killed people, who has people under him, who has an uncommon concern for a slave boy. God is, is moving somehow behind the scenes in this guy's life. The Holy Spirit is moving, and what the Holy Spirit does is the Holy Spirit points people to Jesus. And now this man knows that his power, his authority, his influence, whatever it is that he has is not enough to get the job done. Only a new Lord could do this. And I don't understand, I don't know if we really understand because we live in a democracy which means we're free to say whatever we want, whenever we want, which is a blessing, but when we abuse it, it becomes a curse. We're going to have to choose what's more important, the first amendment or the second commandment. Is me loving you more important than my opinion? Because the church, the, the Yelp spirit, as I was saying earlier, has to get broken off because we think it's our job to just legislate our opinion as if it's the law of Moses. And we feel entitled to do that. 
And God is not asking me for my opinion. He's asking me to submit to what he's called us to do and what he's called me to do and do it with a spirit of gratitude, thankful that he allows me to participate in it. I don't come to church every service and rate it like it's a Yelp restaurant. We live in a generation of inexperienced experts, people who will tell you with authority and confidence how to do something they've never done themselves. And Yelp has conditioned people's mind to think like that. And then we trans, it's awesome for a restaurant. (laughs) It's amazing. It's not cool for church. It's not cool for relationships. Assuredly, I say to you, I haven't found such great faith in Israel. Verse 13, then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way as you have said and believe, let it be done for you. I I want to reiterate that what we believe about God is what we'll receive from him. Psalm says that to the pure, God will show himself pure. To the upright, God will show himself upright. To the fraud, God will show himself a fraud. How can God show him to be himself a fraud? He's not. He's the truth. He doesn't lie. What is he saying? It's saying that what you perceive about him and how you perceive him is what you'll receive from him. What happened in Nazareth? They go, uh, aren't you Jesus? Aren't you Mary and Joseph? Aren't you kind of like an illegitimate like child born out of wedlock, which was not something that they celebrated in those days? In fact, uh, Joseph had the right to stone Mary according to the law, but he didn't. You can't stone someone who's going to fulfill the law. Not a good idea. And so, but he had a right to do that legally. And not everything that's legal is ethical. And not everything that we have the right to do should we do. That's why we need to hear the voice of God. What is God asking us to do? What is God asking us to say? What is God asking us not to say? One of the things that I've learned, and I'll just tell you from my own mistakes, is that many times I've offered my opinion when it wasn't wanted. You know what that makes it? More unwanted. (laughs) Less valuable. The more you hold your tongue, the more people ask you for your opinion. The more valuable it is, the more influence it has. So I'm not going to be offering my opinion if you're not asking for it. And I'm definitely not going to share my opinion as if it's the law of Moses. Have I done that? Yes. Do I regret it? Not anymore. But I learned from it. So I'm trying to save you the pain. Now, I want to just share with you my motives for a second. I'm sharing this message. This message was designed to help you see that how you uh, relate to authority determines what level of faith that you operate in. How I relate, how you relate, how we relate to authority determines the level of faith that we operate in. The level of faith that we operate in determines what we'll be able to get done in the earth. And we're called to bring his kingdom to earth. On earth as it is in heaven, that's how Jesus taught us to pray. That's how he taught us to live. That's what he told us to seek after and seek first. He says, if you seek that first, if you seek the kingdom first, then I'll add things to you. So here's the thing. If God isn't first, there's no adding. How many of you know adding is good? Dividing is not good. Subtracting is not good. Adding and multiplying, that's good. For those of you who know how money works, compound interest, that's good. Debt, that's bad. How do you think people get upgrades to first class? You don't pay your credit card bill, and they send me cash back money. Right? That's what happens. I know because I was the guy who didn't pay my bill, and someone was getting first class upgrades because of me. How does that work? What do you mean free money? I don't go to Walmart or Macy's. They don't give me $30 back and go, thank you, sir. We love you. How does cash back work? Someone doesn't pay. Someone else gets rewarded because they don't pay. Anyway, I don't know why I'm on that. I'm sorry. I got to get off that. Jesus wanted to give the slave boy therapy. The centurion said, command. 
your word, your logos, and my servant will be supernaturally healed. There was something that the centurion believed about Jesus, and what he believed about Jesus is what winded up happening, not just in his life, watch this, but in the life of someone he cared about. God wants to use our faith for someone else's breakthrough. There are people who need an encounter with God, and he has already paid and provided for it, but he needs us to have an upgrade about what we believe about him. Jesus was ready to go through the process of healing through therapy, and and the guy's like, well, that's cool. I mean, who wouldn't want Jesus as your therapist, right? Hey, Jesus, I'm having a really bad day. Well, guess what? He is. And that's cool. But here's the thing. The thing is that in therapy and with counseling, it's awesome. It's amazing. You do an amazing job. But one of the things that we can't lose is the ability and, and the belief in Jesus that what could take a year, he can do in a moment. So we have to live with the conviction that if it takes a year, we're going to love you for a year. If it takes five, we're going to love you for five. But we can't lose the conviction that he can do it in a moment. See, when we understand authority, it shifts what level of faith we operate in. And other people receive breakthrough because what we believe about him. How did this, how, how did this centurion even know? Well, where was Jesus? Capernaum. Do you know where Capernaum was? It's where Jesus operated his ministry from. So somehow he got word, he saw, he heard, I don't know what it was, but he believed the right thing about Jesus and he was willing to speak what he saw. And he saw that Jesus was the Lord. He understood that Jesus was the Lord, which means his boss was not. That's a statement of allegiance. That could have been a statement punishable by death. But dying is how you live in the kingdom. When we're willing to take risks, other people receive breakthroughs. Jesus did and he was healed. Again, I'm going to say this, that what we believe about God will determine what we receive from him. Not always, sometimes God is above and beyond and we're, we're doubting and he does it anyway because he's good. But generally speaking, more often than not, we get from God what we believe about him. Let's turn to Luke 7. Uh, Luke is going to give us a very, very interesting perspective. Now, Luke is the only gospel that was written by a Gentile for the Gentiles. Now, Luke is going to look through different lenses. He sees things differently. He's able to see things that Matthew can't see. Matthew's able to see things that Luke doesn't see. I don't know if we understand this, but we've been conditioned to see things based upon our culture, our experience, our upbringing, or lack thereof, or based upon our experiences. So we do not really see things as they are. We see things as we are. That's why God, to the pure, he'll show himself what? Pure. Your morality usually determines your theology. That's why uh, there's statements that we say that are very unhelpful, that harm people. We say it in, in, in goodwill, not trying to be harmful. We say things like, God is in control. No, he's not. If he's in control, he's doing a very bad job. Send him an email. <laughs> this is a bad place with bad things. But if he's in charge, then people will have to give an account to him for what they did that was not a part of his will. If God's will automatically always happened, we wouldn't have to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come. There is a contention. There, there, there are things that happen that have nothing to do with God's will, that don't reflect the nature of Jesus, that don't show me exactly how Jesus lived and what Jesus spoke and what Jesus did. You want to see the will of God? Look at Jesus. We were just in Puerto Rico, and, and, and I said to them, what is the name of a storm? And they said, Tormenta. And I said, interesting, does that sound like it came from your father? Interesting. I don't get mad at my kids going to their room and rip the place apart. So do I think that I'm better than God? Interesting. Well, we, we blame God for things that 
have nothing to do with him. But I'll tell you what Jesus did make clear. When someone's sick, hungry, naked, and in prison, and thirsty, he made it real clear who he, he identifies with. The suffering. See, we, we either have a God who will one day wipe every tear from our eye, or a God who is the source of our pain. And if he's the source of your pain, I promise you, you won't pursue him, follow him, and serve him. Because we avoid pain at all costs. Luke 7, verse 1. Now, when he concluded all these things in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, a centurion, um, a certain centurion servant who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about it, Jesus heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him. Watch this, this is very interesting. So when he heard about uh, Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one, oh, excuse me, and when they came to him, okay, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Verse 3, so when they heard of Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom we should do this was deserving. Oh, watch this. We're going to get into it. For he loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. He's a big giver. He deserves it. Did you see that the religious people didn't call him Lord? Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. Okay, uh, verse 6. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was ready, not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed, for I am a man placed under authority. And I say to one, go and go, and another come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant, or the doulos, which is the slave, uh, well who had been sick. So this is a slave boy, but yet the centurion, he's dear to this centurion. So for some reason, the centurion cares for someone in that culture who is totally disposable. That is how authority is supposed to be used. We have been given authority to care for people who are less influential than us, who have less than us, and who can do nothing for us. It's not a reflection on how you treat your boss or your pastor. That doesn't reveal who you are. What reveals who you are is how you treat people who are homeless, who are dirty, who are smelly, who are less than you, who are not invited to the table. That is what reveals who we are. So there's something profound about what is happening here. The Holy Spirit somehow is at work within this centurion man. His heart is, is a heart that, this is a man of war. This is not, you know, like a soft guy. He has a hundred trained mercenaries that kill people for a living under him. I, I don't know if you're tracking. This is like the leader of a SEAL team. It's, it's, it's not like a church-going guy, God bless you, brother. This guy has, like, ripped people apart and, like, killed people. But there's something that God is doing in him. This is really something. So he sends the leaders or the rulers of the synagogue to Jesus. Now, I, I love how Luke tells us details that Matthew doesn't tell us. Matthew didn't tell us that first rulers didn't, you know, went to him. I don't know if Matthew was taking a bathroom break. I don't know what he was doing, having lunch, you know what I mean? He wasn't at Starbucks, but 
He didn't, this is a detail that he left out, but Luke is a doctor. And so a doctor is going to give you details that other people are not going to see. Or not, or they're not, they may not think that it's pertinent to the story. But Luke gives us something else. And what's interesting is that this is not something that contradicts it. It completes it. And so what happens here is, is very interesting. So the religious people have a mindset. And, and let me, I want to, if this mindset is you, you have to understand that I'm, I'm not here to hurt anyone's feelings. I love you. But... When we have an entitlement mindset, we see things in a warped way. They thought that he was deserving because of what he did. Yet he felt that he was undeserving based on what he had done. The Jewish people said, listen... He loves our nation. That word love is agape. That's not phileo. That's a God kind of love. God had put love in the heart of a man for a nation that was not his. And that man was able to recognize who Jesus was and what Jesus could do. So there is love in the heart of this man for the Jewish nation. He is an oppressor. He is an occupier of that nation. Capernaum is not Rome. It became Rome when they forcefully went in and killed and raped and pillaged. So the very same guy that is actually oppressing them now has a heart of love and concern and care for those people. And he builds them a synagogue because there's something that he recognizes within their story. He sees something that is different from where he's from. There's something happening. We don't know what it is, and there's no point of trying to label it. But God is at work in the world. And so this man sees. And so it says the, the Jewish elder said that he loves our people. So that's why. Oh, and Jesus, not only does he love our people, he's a, he's a big giver, Jesus. He built this synagogue. So he really deserves a house visit because he's a big giver. You see, that's a mindset of entitlement. I deserve it. This is, what the, this is the religious mindset. The religious mindset is, I perform, therefore I deserve. Jesus spoke about people who were praying. Remember, he said, the religious guy says, I thank God that I'm not like you. The sinner goes, whoa, I'm a bad guy. He's beating his chest like, God, have mercy on me. I've done a lot of bad things. Have mercy. Whose prayer got answered? The bad boy. Not the good boy. Not the self-righteous boy. Not the boy who felt deserving because he was good. But the person who is undeserving and knew it. What you're seeing from the centurion is poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you're poor in spirit, you possess what money cannot buy. When you're poor in spirit, you experience what Caesar cannot provide. When you're poor in spirit, you receive everything that God has. And this is a man of war, a tough guy, a man of authority. He has people under him. He probably has a big household. He's probably well taken care of. But there's something at work. Now you have a man of power, a man of authority, a man of war. But he has a concern for a doulos, which is someone who eats food that he wipes off of his table. So that shows us how authority is to be used. We are supposed to care for people who may have less or who may be struggling. That's how authority is used. When we use authority that way, we gain kingdom influence. The centurion understood how authority works this was how he operated in great faith. His great faith was someone else's encounter with the living God. 
God rescued that boy, that slave boy's life through the ministry of Jesus because that centurion was able to look at Jesus and see Jesus for who Jesus really is, Lord. The religious people who were entitled, who felt like Jesus should do something for them because he was a giver and because he loves our people and because he deserved it, they didn't call Jesus Lord. The people who were supposed to call Jesus Lord did not. The people who was not supposed to call him Lord did. There's a difference there because you have an entitlement mentality. We're the people. We're the promised ones. We're the, that's very, very destructive. Entitlement blinds people of who they could be and what they could experience. If you have a victim entitlement mentality, you will not be able to receive what God has. Not because he won't give it, not because he's not good, because you won't be able to receive it. And now look at Jesus, though. Can we, can we just step into Jesus' eyes? Jesus is a Jew. This man is oppressing his people by blood. Jesus heals the slave boy of a man whose country and nation has pillaged, raped, killed, oppresses, and extorts consistently his people. How's that for love? Think about that. Let's modernize that. You're an American soldier. You're stationed in Afghanistan. You're a Christian. You're feeling a major conflict between your faith, your freedom, your rights, your choices. You're having all kinds of conflicts. And Jesus says, well, today, today is your day off. I want you to go pray for a man down the street. He's the servant of Al-Qaeda. And the soldier goes and he prays and Jesus heals. Do you see the conflict there? This is a major conflict of Jesus' influence, uh, interests, but he chose love, not his political interests. When we love like this, we reflect the kingdom of God. We are not called to, uh, to reflect our nation of origin. We are citizens of the kingdom first. If we're not kingdom first, we will misrepresent who we're supposed to be an ambassador for. If I'm anything before I'm a Christian, I have a problem. If I'm New Jersey before I'm a Christian, there's going to be a problem. If I'm an American before I'm a Christian, there's a problem. Because in America, we worship the first uh, amendment. But in the kingdom, we worship God and he's first. My opinion is not first. My perception is not first. What I want to say is not first. God is first. And when he's not, things go awry, so to speak. So now, I wanted to um, share with you a few things and then we're going to wrap up. Love must be faith's motive. Not only Jesus, but the centurion They were both motivated by love and care. Jesus was willing to come over and give therapy uh, to someone who couldn't pay him, someone who was insignificant, someone in that culture who was disposable, but not to Jesus. We cannot value people based upon their worth in terms of how we perceive their worth or what we perceive about them. We have to see people as priceless, Created in the image of God. Because if we don't see the image of God in the face of people, we will not treat them correctly. And when we don't treat them correctly, we're not treating him correctly. Jesus, who is sinless, was willing to identify himself with prisoners. Why? Because not everyone who goes to jail is guilty. In fact... Jesus paid 
taxes to a nation that he wasn't a citizen of. And Jesus was crucified, which also lets you know that he was not a Roman citizen. Roman citizens were not crucified. That's why Paul was beheaded, not crucified. Peter was crucified. He wasn't a Roman, they weren't Roman citizens. Paul appealed to Caesar and they took, him, they took him there. And he lived in a hired house for two years. This is important. Love has to be the motive. If we love people, if we care for people, we'll see the power of God in our life. If people know that we love them, we can say anything to them. If someone knows that you truly love them and you're willing to walk with them, you can say anything to them. Jesus came from an oppressed minority. He was a political refugee. He was not blonde hair, blue eyes. In fact, he was a brown man. And he was willing to heal the servant of the people that oppressed his people. If that's not love, Jesus could have had a chip on his shoulder. Jesus could have felt like a victim. But he didn't. There's no victory in feeling like a victim. You can't receive if you feel entitled. You'll never serve the world if you believe it owes you something. Yes? You guys with me? So this is, this is critical because love has to be our motive. When we engage with one another, when we engage with the world around us, when we engage with the sick, the broken, the poor, the hungry, when we engage with a guy on Wall Street who is more poor than a guy who lives in a shack in Haiti, do you know more rich people jump out of buildings than poor people? I know people that eat a meal and a half a day and they're happier than most of us. When we interact with the world around us, when they see that love is our motive, when we learn how to flow and understand and operate in authority, faith operates. The power of God is manifested. People have an encounter with Jesus. Their lives are different because we showed up. But we've got to get this thing. And here's the thing. Whether you've been abused, I'm not minimizing your suffering or your pain or what you went through. If you were neglected, if you were abused, if whatever it is that you may have went through, you have to understand that the enemy did that for one reason. So that you wouldn't relate to authority correctly, so that you couldn't move in great faith. Because that is the only wineskin that great faith sits in. This is the only time Jesus ever mentioned great faith. And the word great is like large. Large faith. Vast and Jesus doesn't use words cheaply. If he says it was good, it was good. If he says it's large, it's large. His estimate is always accurate. How was the meeting? Oh my God, it was great. There was 300 people. There was like 30. It wasn't that great. It was okay. When we use words cheaply without being thoughtful, we diminish their value. Jesus didn't do that. When he said great faith, he meant great faith. Jesus marveled. Jesus admired this man's faith. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up in, in just a minute. But I don't know if you remember, but guess what happened in Acts chapter 10 when the gospel goes to the Gentiles? Who does it go through? Another centurion. His name is Cornelius. Now Jesus sends Peter to minister to the people that are oppressing his people. And he addresses Peter's racism. And racism is a false narrative because we're all one human race anyway. The blood of a black guy saved the blood of a white guy and the blood of a white guy saved the guy of a black guy because they're the same race. Race is a false narrative that we've bought into for too long. Prejudice and color is something, but we're one human race. We all came from the dust of the earth, and I promise you the dust of the earth wasn't white. Because from black and from brown, you can get white. From white, you cannot get black or brown. It doesn't work that way. So that's, all that stuff is just, it doesn't matter. What matters is love is our motive. 
What matters is that we love people. What matters is that we understand God's authority and his authority is to care for people, especially people who've been left out, who've been forgotten, who are less than, who don't have a seat at the table, whose voices aren't heard. This is an interesting thing. So in Acts 10, the same thing. Peter has a vision. He has to eat things that he thinks are unclean. God is shifting his perception. He goes. He, gets a, he has a word of knowledge. He preaches the gospel. The gospel goes to the Gentiles. It, again, how did it go to the Gentiles? It went to the Gentiles or the pagans, us, through a man who understood authority. Sometimes what we call freedom is rebellion. We live in a generation that calls freedom rebel that calls rebellion freedom. We live in a generation of people that doesn't want to be confronted, that doesn't want to be corrected, that doesn't want to be held accountable. If you tell them something's wrong, you're unloving, you're judging me. No, I'm not. I'm telling that if you continue that way, you're gonna wind up seeing Aunt Sheila in 30 years. That's a good thing, but I'm saying if you continue this way, you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to damage your life. You're going to, you're going to really harm yourself. Oh, don't judge me. Okay. Your actions will judge yourself. I already crashed into a wall at high speed. I know what that's going to do. I'm trying to warn you. But I don't want to be warned because I'm free. And as Christians, one of the things that, that we have to really be careful of is that we assume our motives are good because we have good intentions because we're Christians. So because of that, sometimes we're totally unaware of how the world perceives us. It's really hard to minister to people that you don't know how they perceive you. You think you're here, but you're really here. And you don't even have a right to influence them, and you're trying to tell them what to do, and they're like, I don't even know who you are. And you're no different than me half the time. So now, this is important, because the enemy tries, right, to rob us of our sense of understanding how to flow with authority, how to honor, because if he robs our honor, he steals our promotion. So what happens is, either I honor the right way according to the kingdom, not flatter, honor, because you're humble, you ascribe worth and value to other people, which means you can receive the treasure that they are which means what God has deposited in them, you can receive. So don't let friendship or familiarity rob you of the treasure of who someone is. Don't stumble over who someone is not. Receive them for who they are. So if the enemy steals our sense of honor, then there's no promotion. So what do we have to do then? Self-promote, which is the opposite of humility. Which eventually leads to a fall. Versus humility, you're going to have to wait a whole lot longer and you're going to have to go through a whole lot more pain, but it's worth it because then when God lifts you up, you don't owe anyone anything because you didn't have to flatter anyone to get there. This is important. So if we don't choose honor because we're truly humble, there's a lot of false humility out there. I'll just honor you because I can get something from it. Well, do you honor someone who can give you nothing? In fact, that's actually the people that we're supposed to use our authority for. We're supposed to use the influence that we have to be a voice for people who have no voice. We're not just supposed to use our authority so that our voice can be heard more and more and more for our own whatever, for our own gain. So love has to be the motive. To have great faith, we must understand how to operate under authority properly. This is just this is clear. And, and here's the thing. The thing is that in a culture of abuse, of rejection, of uh, authority figures not using their authority correctly, when I say the word authority, people hear sometimes what happened to them or what didn't happen for them. But we've got to actually re-engage our ears and fine-tune them to define things as Jesus defined them. 
Like if I say success, right, many people go, ooh, that's like, you know, they think Wall Street, they think, you know, like a really expensive car in a big house or whatever it is that you think. But success was actually God's idea to Joshua. Joshua didn't bring it up. God brought it up. So if I don't define success that way, I will relate to it incorrectly, which means I won't really have it. And it's the same thing with authority and different words that have been abused, misused, like leadership or all these words that are actually our words. They've been abused, they've been redefined, and we've been robbed of the meaning and the power behind them. That's why we we shouldn't just use words, you know, we should be cautious and careful with our words, because if we're not, then they don't mean anything. You know, in, in Greek, there's four or five words for love. In English, I love my car, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love pizza, buffalo chicken pizza, but I don't have the same love for buffalo chicken pizza or commitment to buffalo chicken pizza that I do to my wife. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a different type of love. So when we use words cheaply, we, we rob ourselves of what they actually mean. So I, I want to tie this all together. As the gospel goes to the Gentiles, it goes through a man who understood authority. A man who was of authority. A man who people trusted. A man who had count of, you know, credibility with people. That's why when he invited his neighbors to his house, they came. And result, 3,000 people get saved. I would say that's a man of influence. Right? What's the point? The point is that we've been given influence. We've been given exousia. We've been given authority. And that authority is not to control. It's not to manipulate. It's to care for others. So when you think of authority... Think of care. Authority comes with a responsibility attached to it. That's why there's a difference between rebellion and freedom. Rebellion says there's no responsibility. Just do whatever you want. Freedom comes with accountability. You don't believe me? Go commit a crime. Watch what happens. We live in a free, it's a lot freer than most places, trust me. But there, you, to facilitate freedom, watch this, there has to be accountability. Account, without accountability, freedom doesn't last. So without accountability, you're actually not free. So authority, watch this, is to facilitate accountability to facilitate freedom. Freedom is an environment where people can thrive. And that's God's goal. His agenda is for his kingdom to thrive here on earth as we properly relate to his authority and we use that authority to care for others as we're motivated by love to care for people who are less fortunate or who are in circumstances that are, that are negative or, or rough. And a lot of times it's not good to assume that just because where someone is, that's like I could look at someone and go, oh, you're there and you belong there and that may not be the that may not be the true story. The, may, the sometimes the true story is life put them there, and it's not my job to judge how they got there. It's my job to help them out. 